Well, good morning, uh, church family. Uh, thank you guys for gathering with us here on this Lord's Day. Um, a very special day for us each week that has been established since the early church um, as an opportunity for those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, for those of us who have been saved to, to gather. And the Bible tells us that this opportunity, that we shouldn't forsake it, that it should be the priority of every one of our weeks, that more than our job, uh, more than uh, personal gain, uh, more than activities, more than recreation, that this gathering is one of the climaxes, if not the climax of your week, that we should long to, to gather with the believers, to be sharpened by them. And so this morning, we as the people of Mission Church have gathered here to do those very things, and that is to, to worship God and to make disciples and praying that God would multiply in our lives and through the disciple-making process and through the planting of other churches. And so thank you uh, for giving us of some of your time and gathering with us and not forsaking this opportunity, but taking it, it very seriously. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I think it's either having ADD or just naturally um, I, I can be forgetful. And so I've come up with coping mechanism, as many of us who actually succeed in the world, um, who have what I have, um, have to come up with ways in which uh, to remind us of certain things. So I'm a, I'm a note taker. I have a calendar that I live by. Um, I uh, make notes about a lot of different things. Um, I have things in my home um, that you would not recognize as a reminder. Uh, because one of the things that I do not need to be reminded of, though, is the importance of eating. As you can tell, nobody's starving at my house. I am definitely not starving. I quite enjoy eating. If I have any talents, eating is probably one of my greatest ones. And so I, I like many of you who are wrestling through trying to take care of myself, through exercising and through eating right, um, I even have reminders in my home that many of you are not even are aware of in rooms that you have been in, in my home, to remind me not to eat what I want to eat, all right? Because, again, my temptation is, is to be forgetful, um, and even to be forgetful toward not what's doing wrong, but that I need to be reminded of what I need to do that is right and good and holy. Uh, many times in our lives and in the Christian life, um, you can look at the Old Testament a lot and see a lot of forgetfulness. And we flip on over to the New Testament, Jesus is even here, and guess what's happening? Forgetfulness um, amongst God's people. Because the thing is, is that we, and I don't know if it's because of, uh, of the sin, the, the sin death that is within us, um, initially has caused this, but we just simply have a tendency to forget the very things that God has just shown us to be true. And in order to remember, God has established certain things in uh, the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in Christendom to be constant reminders of not only things that we're not to do, but things that he wants us to do. And today, we're going to be looking at that as we dive into the King's Feast. Sometimes to understand um, the future or to understand what's going on in the present, uh, we have to look at the past. The Bible tells us here, and as we've been studying for several months now, the Passover week amongst God's people, the Jewish people, of which Jesus was a Jew. He was a faithful Jew, and I would contend a perfect Jew, the ultimate Jew. He is the standard of Judaism. Jesus obeyed the law to the T perfectly, um, and, and we see that Jesus is observing the Passover feast, which is also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was instituted in the, by God in the Old Testament um, as a reminder to the Jews of God's redeeming power in, in their lives. That they were once in slavery to the Egyptians. They were in bondage, 
by these wicked Egyptians who kept them in bondage and slaves and I mean, beat them as they, they built these monuments to these pagan gods. All the while, these, these poor slaves are begging for God's redemption as well. And in Exodus chapter 2, God sends Moses and Aaron um, to Pharaoh to demand that he would release the Israelites. But Pharaoh would not let them go. So what does God do? God sends plague after plague after plague after plague to the Egyptians to hurt them, to help, hopefully, to relinquish the grip that Pharaoh has on his heart. And yet, Pharaoh's heart becomes even more hardened toward God and his people. And the Bible says that God even makes his heart even harder. So he will not let them go. And so as a final act of judgment, God says, I'm going to send my wrath. I'm going to send the death angel, I'm going to send my presence, and it is going to take the life of every newborn child in Egypt. I'm going to take the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. And so on the eve of God delivering the Israelites, this is what he does. God tells the people to slaughter a year-old goat, to smear the blood over their front doors, then roast the animal and eat the meat. They were to eat the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs to prepare for a quick exit. That's why he has them do this. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11 through 13, um, it says this. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God says in this mystical kind of just crazy event that he's going to send his wrath and that he is going to come to those homes and the ones that are covered in the blood, he is going to literally pass over them, allow those firstborns to, li- to live, but everyone who does not is not covered in the blood, they will surely die. And so on that very night that they were eating this meal, you can only imagine that for the Egyptians' homes that were not covered in blood, this was a night of immense grief. Can you imagine the screams of moms and dads as they go into their kids' bedroom or where their child is sleeping and they find their firstborn son, the legacy of their name, dead? And yet simultaneously, for the Israelites, you could probably hear the screams and celebration in the homes of the Jews. Why? Because they were spared by God. They were set free. The wrath of God was passed over them because they were covered in the blood of the sacrifice. God commanded his people from then on to celebrate the Passover meal annually as a reminder of God's deliverance, a reminder of who their God was and who their identity was as God's people. God had not done this for all the people groups in the world. He had done it for the Jews and those who had been converted to Judaism. He did it for his people. And every year they were to gather and to celebrate this just amazing occasion where God has redeemed them from bondage and from slavery. And they have now done it for thousands of years. Continuing in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, and then I'm going to read a passage from Exodus 13. Exodus 12, 26 through 27 says, And when your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Later on, dads, moms, this is a good thing for you. He tells us in Exodus 13, 8 through 10, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be a sign as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep 
this statuette, and it's appointed time from year to year. So the Passover, probably the closest thing that I have to compare it to, it should probably be Easter week for us, um, is Christmas. Imagine all the buildup that this kind of, or my wife's birthday month, which she celebrates all of October, it's a big deal for these people, okay? And in a, in a similar way, God is giving them, again, it is a reminder, remember what I have done. But also notice, when your kid comes to you and says, Dad, why are we, you know, eating Billy, our lamb, <laughs> that we've been keeping for a while? Or, or, or why are we eating these bitter herbs? Or why are we eating this cracker here today? Then what does it allow them to do? It is a reminder personally, but it is also a proclamation of God's physical salvation from the Egyptians. See, things that you need to get as Americans that we don't get is in the Middle East, history never dies. It never dies. With us, we don't remember what happened yesterday. But amongst Middle Eastern people, Muslims, Middle Eastern people, history is your lifeblood. It is your it is the thread that binds people groups, and it does not die. And, and Jesus wants them to know, God wants them to know that the history of his salvation physically from the Egyptians and bringing them to the promised land, do not forget this. In the Exodus, we see God. What does God do? God saves them from their oppressors. God saves them um, from you know, his wrath in the sense of that he, he does not kill them because they're covered in the blood. But what else does God do? God takes them to a new home, the promised land. I, w- I would continue and argue that this is the greatest act that we see inside of the Old Testament. It is what is referred to over and over and over and over and over again. Thousands of years pass. And where do we find Jesus. Obeying God's command with his family. It's once again, it's Passover time. Jesus has experienced probably around 33s of these national celebrations of redemption. For the past three, he has celebrated with this ragtag, probably group of, of, of teenagers, these 12 men and probably a few other faithful followers. The Passover, he has celebrated with them. But we will see this morning that this Passover is, is very different from all of the rest. Jesus is going to use this, this very momentous opportunity to establish a new covenant with his people and to give them a, a, a reminder that would be celebrated in the form of a great feast. So if we look at our text here today, we see that Jesus has this occasion that, it, that the Passover has come. Um, in verse 17 is the first day of unleavened bread. The disciples come to Jesus and they're saying, okay, we got to get ready for this, this big meal, all right? This is happening, all right? We got some, I don't know, about my house at Thanksgiving and those sorts of things. is like, you know, there's turkey and there's dressing and there's yams and there's sweet potato casserole and there's hash brown and there's bread. And I, I go old school. I put it all on the plate and I just cover it all in gravy. That's called Thanksgiving, all right? It is amazing. I mean, you got to prepare for that. Mama Nana is working all night, the night before, all day, leading up to the moment where I get to pour gravy over everything. If she would hand me a cup, I would drink the gravy. It's that good, all right? There's got to be a preparation for this, okay? And likewise, for the Passover, there's got to be this preparation. And and we're going to look at Luke here in just a second. But in the other Gospels, Jesus tells them, or the disciples come and say, hey, how are we going to get ready for this? Jesus says, okay, you're going to go to the the, the city, and inside the city, there's going to be like this random dude. All right, Justin and I were talking earlier about, I wonder who that random dude is. I'd like to be that guy. And the Bible even tells us that you're going to know that it's the random guy that I've chosen because he's going to be gathering water. What's interesting about this, about the nerd out just for a second, is gathering water is women's work, all right? Don't be offended at me. It just, that's what it is culturally. Even, even when we went to Africa, you never saw a dude going miles and miles carrying pots on his neck and head to get water. It was always a female's responsibility. Yet the Bible tells us that the man, they're going to know it's him because he's gathering water. 
this would have been extremely strange. And again, I think what God is showing here is it's, it's, they may have something to prepare, but God has a sovereign plan. He has a sovereign plan. And this is how you're going to know that it is him. Jesus sits down. They're, they're eating the meal. Again, they would not have been sitting at table and chairs. They would have probably been at a low-lying table, resting on their left elbow, eating um, with their right hand. This is exactly what we did when we were visiting the Songhai just a few months ago, as we would eat most of our meals called eating around the bowl. They would fix all of the meal. It was mashed all together. It was on a big tin plate, and you squatted down next to people you just met, your brothers and sisters in Christ many times, and you reached in, and you popped it in your mouth, and that's how we ate most of our meals. This is very similar to what Jesus is doing, and I know that that grosses out many of you because we are a culture that is dipped in peril, all right? But you would eat together. And so Jesus, you kind of hear the, the, the record scratch as Jesus, as they're having this celebration, and Jesus goes, hey, by the end of the night, one of you is going to betray me. And the Bible tells us they, they become sorrowful. And they actually begin to ask the questions to Jesus. They're like, Lord, is, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And as we learned last week, we already know who it is. There's a man named Judas in the end of this passage in Matthew right here. He tells us that, that Judas, probably going last, probably sitting in the seat of honor next to Jesus. That paints a crazy picture. Finally looks at Jesus after he already carrying probably the 30 pieces of silver in his cloak pocket. Looks at Jesus and notice what he says. Quote me on it. He doesn't say, Lord, is it I? He says, Rabbi, teacher, is it I? Is it I? Then Jesus says, you have said so. And then, guess what? Judas doesn't get up and leave, folks. Judas is there for this meal. says this in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. All right, just for a moment of clarity, what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bible and you're going to flip over to the Gospel of Luke. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third of the Gospels inside of the, the New Testament. Flip over to the right. You're going to go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Let me read this to kind of paint some more picture for you. It says this, verse 14. And then when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup after the blood. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, excuse me, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another which one of them it could be and who was going to do this. What we don't have time to break into today is, is that in Luke's gospel, we, and we, we see this picture directly after this, that after they're questioning Jesus, that they go back to their elementary schoolyard debate over who's the greatest. Surely I couldn't do this. 
I'm the man. I, I am the, the greatest. But we see here several different points inside of these passages that Jesus is going to take the Passover and he's going to redeem it. He's going to make it anew. He's going to form a new covenant. He is going to give his people a reminder of the importance of what he is about to do. The first thing that I want you to get this morning is this, that Jesus illustrates through this what we call now the Lord's Supper, that we are to remember what Jesus has accomplished. That we are to remember what Jesus has accomplished. Just for a moment, I want us to focus in that if you're a person and you're breathing in here, guess what you are? You are a sinner apart from Jesus. That when we come to this table, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be reminded of the depths of our sin. We are to be reminded of the wretchedness of our hearts. What if we just took the, the next few moments and we calculated back through this last week every thought that was ungodly and unholy, every whisper of hell that is called gossip, that maybe even sweetly spoken out of our mouths with a smile was cast. That it, not everything that we did that was wrong, but also all of the things that we didn't do that God commands his people to do. We're not even talking about a lot of times we give our testimonies. We love to tell these stories of these grandiose sin seasons in our lives. And brothers and sisters, if you don't have a testimony of this week, I want you to know that you are missing something in the person and work of Jesus. Every time that we come to this table, the first thing that we need to remember is this. It is the depths of our sins. We need to ask God, Lord, reveal to me the things that I've done this week. Reveal to me them, God, help me with this. But after we think about that, we need to remember the work of Jesus over that. See, brothers and sisters, God has not called us to, to live a life of defeat, but the, the, the Lord's Supper, communion, reminds us to live in the victory over those things, and we need to be reminded of that gospel truth every week, every day of our lives. And specifically, when we get to come together, we get to remember the person and work of Jesus. Jesus tells us, do this what? In remembrance of me. So think about your sin, but do not edify your sin above the work of Jesus. He has died upon the cross. They're about to see this in a matter of a few hours. They're eating this meal and they have no clue to the extent of what is about to happen. And yet, what does Jesus do? He is, he is here and he's reminding them, man, look at what it costs. Look at what the king's feast cost. The king's feast cost for my body to be torn. To take a moment to think about what Jesus accomplished by having his body just literally flogged at a, a Roman whipping post for it to be pierced, for it to be hung naked upon a cross, for him to be mocked and ridiculed, for a crown of thorns to be placed upon his head, for a spear to be rammed into his side, that his body was probably just hanging off of his limbs. What drove him to do that? Ultimately, obedience to God and the redemption of you and I's sin. We were there. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, you were there. You were there. Your sins were placed upon that cross. And so, yes, there is a moment to remember our sin, but even more so, we need to remember what Jesus has accomplished. His body, though torn, though flogged, though pierced, though hung, it was mocked, it was bruised. And yet his blood, what happens, it is spilt out. It is poured out for the remissions of those sin. Jesus's, I believe this, Jesus' blood, one ounce of it was 
perfect and and sufficient in the covering of his people's sin. But what does he do? What does God require? No, God requires for the sacrifice to bleed out. God requires for the sacrifice to die. And Jesus joyfully goes to the cross to die for your sins this week. For the sins that you have done if you're in Jesus. For the sins that you will commit today. And for the sins that you will, forget, uh, will commit in the future. Jesus has died for them. They are dead on the cross. Because of our Lord and Savior Jesus. As one writer wrote, I eat this bread and drink this cup because of what the Lord did for me on the cross. When he freed me from my sin. Remember your sinfulness, but brothers and sisters, when we come to this table every week, may we remember Christ's triumph over it. It is covered. Do not live in condemnation. Do not live beaten and broken to a slave of sin. But no, may we walk in the victory that is in Jesus. Your sin, if you are in Jesus, my sin, if I am in Jesus, is covered in the blood of Jesus. Remember me when you eat. Remember me when you drink. Don't remember you. Remember me. Adam and Eve's, therefore, ours relationship with God was broken with what? A meal. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of its restoration through a feast. The Passover redeemed and rescued the people of earth from slave, earthly slavery and, and, and God's wrath and, and the wrath of Pharaoh, but it did not rescue them from themselves. Jesus redeemed this ancient celebration. The Passover is now called the Lord's Supper as we celebrate God's people being rescued again from God's eternal wrath out of sin's slavery to be reconciled to God. Jesus is our victory. We are celebrating a new covenant, a new way of life that is sealed in the blood of Jesus Number one, we need to remember what Jesus has accomplished. Let's face it, brothers and sisters, many of us often forget what Jesus has done. The second thing that we need to understand is that Jesus has accomplished something in the past, but that Jesus is also currently present as we partake. That he is here. Not to get super spiritual or, or, or mystical on you, Man, I encourage you every day to take a moment and to say these words, Lord, you are here, and then be quiet. Just to acknowledge, I mean, do we get that? Sure, you're, you're here, right? I'm here, but do we, do we often think about the, the presence of God is, is here and is among us? Whether we're gathered in this grouping or eating at, uh, later or, or when you're at your house or when you're by yourself, that, that God is here. We need to remember through the bread and through the cup that God is present. And what is significance about his presence? And the Lord's Supper is a reminder that he is with us, that Jesus is here. And yet, probably out of all the points that I have for you today, this is the one that causes the most debate. I want to clarify something this morning. I do not want to appear to be haughty, but I do want to be faithful to the text. The, the Catholic perspective of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Communion, is, is very different than ours. The Catholic perspective is that, is that they believe that the actual bread and the, the juice, the wine, becomes the very substance of Jesus. Sure, it still tastes like bread, tastes like wine. If you were to put it under a microscope, guess what it would show? It's bread and it's wine. But brothers and sisters, 
Catholics believe that it is the physical body of Jesus, that it is his physical blood. There were many times throughout Catholic history that only the priests were allowed to drink it. Why? Because what if we spill Jesus all over the place? And we have some people around here who are known for spilling things. Some more than others. All right? And so what if we're having communion and Brother Adam spills Jesus all over the floor? What do we do? So it's best for one guy to drink for everybody than to have Jesus' juice, Jesus' literal blood, spilt all over the floor. So many times, for a long time, inside of Catholicism, only the priests were allowed to drink because they didn't want to spill it. They believe it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. He is physically present in the elements. So to re- get this, so to receive communion is to receive Christ. To take communion is to receive forgiveness. Does anybody see a problem here? I pray that you do. This is not the gospel. Imagine just for a moment, you're not a Christian. All you got to do is, is, is eat some Kroger bread and some Welch's here, and you have received Jesus. You were you saved by these elements. You were taking Jesus into your physical body. Therefore, it is equal to salvation. There is a major issue here. This is not the gospel. This is what Paul is battling in Galatians where the people were trying to say, you've got to have Jesus, yes, but you also have to be circumcised in order to receive salvation. This is at the core of what happened inside of what is called the Protestant Reformation that allows you and I to be here. This year celebrates the 500th year of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers, rightly so, were calling people away from this idea of works-based salvation, that you've got to do something in order to get saved. They were declaring, as Scripture teaches, that salvation is a gift. Salvation is not trusting our work, but His. Salvation is a declaration of leaning completely on the person and work of Jesus. So men, godly men and godly women began to rise up against Catholicism. They're like, no, we're justified by faith and by faith alone. We are are saved by only by the person and work of Jesus. To add anything to the gospel plus this equals salvation. It is no longer the gospel. So how did the Catholic Church respond? And I quote, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be an anathema. Anathema means let them be accursed. We need to know our history. We need to know the severity of what we're talking about here today. So what happens in the Reformation? I wish I had a lot of time this morning because I I would love to tell you about a, a man named Rollins White, who was an uneducated, could not read fisherman. Who his, his youngest, one of his sons, was able to read. And so every night, in order for him to grow in his relationship with Jesus, they would sit down after a, a meal, and, and Rollins would have his son teach him the gospel. And he began to understand that, man, we are saved again, not by our works, but we are saved by faith. Well, eventually, a long story made really short uh, Rollins is burned at the stake because of what he believes about this very meal. 
Do you get that? They burned him at the stake, and when the priest got up to cause him to, to call him to recant, started quoting these passages. And at the end of it, while his flesh is burning, Rollins looks at the priest and says, You hypocrite! And, and paraphrase essentially says, Did you not finish the passage? What does Jesus say at the end of that? Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me, John Huss and four other women, um, they were, were burned at the stake because of their views on communion. They believed that it was not salvific in nature, but it was to remind us of the person and work of Jesus and how he has saved us. And as the crowd gasped in amazement at the holy boldness, the signal was given, the executor, executioner stepped forward and put a torch to the pilings, and as the flames leaped up, upward toward Huss, he died singing this with on his lips, Jesus, son of the living God, have mercy on me. Another one, John Huller, taken to the stake. He was, he was placed into a pitch barrel, all right? You do that because pitch ignites quicker. They placed him in a pitch barrel, and, and they lit him on fire. And as they were doing this, all of these angry mob people start chucking books that agreed with John, that were from his perspective. And so it also became this book burning against the reformer's writings. So this man is burning at the stake. They're chucking books. And as they're chucking books, it just so happens a, 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 a Reformation book on communion that supported John Huller and the reformers that we are not saved by taking communion, but we are saved by the cross and resurrection of Jesus flew toward him and he was able to catch it. And he opens it. While his limbs are burning around him, this man is reading this text. The flames begin to, to come up around him, and so he's able to hold the book up over his head. And as his flesh is falling off his body, he is reading from these texts in support of the person and work of Jesus. And to the point where the, the smoke and the flames got so tall that he could no longer see the pages. And the, and the, the people witnesses said that he took the book then, cleaned it to, clung it to his chest and to his heart, and thanked God in his dying breath that he gave him such an amazing experience and opportunity. Why did these men and women die? Over some bread and some wine. Over a meal. Over the Lord's Supper. We must be careful not to take it lightly. We must be careful not to take it flippantly. They understood the church had gone wayward. They were declaring that man could be saved by works, saved by simply taking the bread and the wine. This was not the gospel. This was not the good news. This is not why Jesus would come and die. This is not what Jesus would say when he would say, do this in remembrance of me. He does not say, do this in remembrance of me and you and what we brought to the table. No, we bring nothing to the table of salvation, brothers and sisters. Nothing. Jesus brought everything. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we are saved by grace, by his mercy. We are justified by, by Christ alone, by faith alone. During the time of the Reformation, several hundred people died because of the meal that we are about to take and what they believed about Jesus and what he was trying to say through it. And I don't know about you, but I plan on getting tacos after worship today, and I don't expect I'm going to be killed for eating that. This is your legacy. Jesus is going to be killed, brothers and sisters, for what is going to be reflected in this meal. Brothers and sisters who have come before us were killed. One of my favorite preachers in my life, a man named Jonathan Edwards, Puritan pastor, considered to be probably the greatest preacher that America has ever produced, got fired from his church over this right here because he believed it was only for believers. And they fired him. Greatest preacher in America. 
our history has ever known inside of these United States. This is a big deal. We can't do this every week, I know, but we need to get this. We need to get the seriousness of this and the beauty of this. We need to understand this is not simply a misunderstanding by a few people. This has major gospel implications for you and I. This is a distortion of the gospel to believe that you can do this or that you can get baptized and baptism through water equals salvation. Likewise, that is not true. Taking this elements does not save you, but it reminds us. It's no less beautiful as it reminds us of the person and work of Jesus. Guys, get this. Ladies, get this. You are not saved by your works. You are not justified by your works. No, we are justified, therefore we work. It never be understood from this pulpit that you've got to have Jesus and you've got to do blank to get salvation. However, I do want us to understand this. If you are saved, there is work to be done, and Jesus' children will naturally do that work. That's why we got to get out of begging people to be obedient. Because if you're saved, guess what you will be? You will be. Your nature's new. That's what we remember. I'm a new creation. This meal reminds me of that. So how is Jesus present then? We're to remember what Jesus has accomplished. We are to remember that Jesus is present. How is Jesus present then? Jesus is present relationally to us. Many times Jesus will say that he is a gate, that he is a door. But nobody's expecting to see Jesus if you go to Lowe's today and go to the door section and, oh, there's Jesus. He says many times, I, I am the vine, right? And you are the branches. Jesus relating very similarly to, to this. He's saying, man, I am the bread. I am the wine. Though he is not physically present, he is here. His work, his, his essence, his um, uh, ability to affect what is going on. The great reformer John Calvin illustrated it like this. The sun remains in the heavens, yet its warmth and its light are present on the earth. So is Jesus. So there is a level of seriousness. I'll never forget the day that I walked into a church situation where a bunch of children were partaking in what they called communion with donuts and milk. And I'm being serious. It was served on a plate and in a chalice as small children, of which we do not know were saved or not, were dunking gads, donuts, into the goblet of milk. And they were calling it communion. There's... There is a level of seriousness here. There's a, a sense of reference that needs to be taken here. The next thing that we need to remember is this. Jesus wants us to remember that this is for the church. Did you know that the Lord's something is not something to be done alone? Jonathan can't go out on tomorrow morning and me meet with him on tomorrow afternoon for coffee at one of our local joints that we like to visit, and me say, man, what are you doing in your quiet time? Well, this morning I was reading some Jeremiah, and I had a little goblet of wine, grape juice, juicy juice for some of you, and a cracker, and I served myself communion. No. <laughs> you can't do that. That's not communion, all right? That's breakfast, all right? What we have to understand is that the Lord's Supper is not something to be done alone. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. It is done with the church. The first thing that it does for the church is it unifies the church. Let's read these passages. In 1 Corinthians, you can turn with me or I may have them up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then we're going to read from chapter 11. Paul is talking about, guess what? Several years later, guess what the church is still doing? This right here, we see it even in Acts chapter 2 and several places in Acts. This continued, 
All right? They continued to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from adultery. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not participation in the body of Christ because there is one bread. Uh, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. And he goes on, I don't have it up there, but it says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If you skip over, Paul's continuing this argument to the Corinthians, and I'll explain why in just a second. He says this, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you have come together as a church, I hear that there are many divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, they're acting like they are eating it. Paul says they're not. From an eating, each of you goes ahead with its own meal. One goes hungry, the other one gets drunk. What? Do you not have the houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you pr proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, like Eating this meal wrongfully, the Bible tells us here, can cause you to be weak, ill, and even some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are dis disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when they come together, it would not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So initially, in chapter 10, Paul is talking about this Corinthian church has just gone wild. These people are professing to be believers, but they have gone crazy. Like, if you want to see a church get immersed in divisions, sexual immorality, um, like bad leadership, all these sorts of things is happening inside of the church at Corinth. God is cool with us having non-Christian friends, but God is not cool with us worshiping their gods. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They're claiming to be followers of Jesus, but they also dabble in this over here. Like, if you ever run to a Hindu Buddhist Christian, all right, it sounds weird to us. It's out there, okay? But it can be there, all right? And so that's what's happening. Imagine First Baptist Corinth, and, and, and Paul is saying, man, there's a major issue here. But we see this, what? This togetherness. Paul uses the illustration of the bread and the cup to unify the body as one meal, one God, one body. Just as baptism is for believers, so is communion. Believers, baptism. Believers, communion. The meal is an illustration of the unity in Christ in the church, and in the early church, the table meal would have destroyed racism. It would have destroyed economic positions. It would have destroyed social status. It would have destroyed power. The gospel destroys all of this to create one body under one God. So if you're eating of this meal today, what you are saying is, is I belong to Jesus. And I belong to this church. I belong to this body of believers. We believe and live the same things. This is my real family. I serve these people. I'm accountable to these 
people. There's a, a deeper binding blood than the DNA that is passed on from your father and your mother. It is the DNA that has covered our very sins, and that is the DNA and blood of Jesus. Communion is never done alone, and it shouldn't be. Communion renews our commitment to God's people. We have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with each other. We are bound to Christ, and we are bound to each other. That's why Paul says when you're coming together, there's so many fractions and divisions that you think that you're taking of the Lord's Supper, but you're not. Because the Lord's Supper is to be eaten by those who are unified in the person and work of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is not just merely a snack on a Sunday morning, but it is the declaration that I am my beloved's and he is mine and his church is my church. I serve. I belong to. I'm accountable. Look around. Look who's eating with me. These are my people. I'm in covenant with them as I am in covenant with God. The second thing that, that it does for the church is it gives us spiritual nourishment. For sake of time, I don't have time to read this today, but it says in John chapter 6, Jesus is, is telling them, truly, truly, I, I am the what? The bread of life. Moses and, and the people of Israel were given manna in, in the Old Testament, but there is a new and better manna. It is me. I am Jesus. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. This is what Jesus is saying is that it gives nourishment to the church. I don't know about you, but living missionally, by the time I get here on a Sunday morning, I am often depleted. I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of the cross of Jesus. I need to be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus. I need to, to link arms with my brothers and sisters in Christ and know that I am not in this alone because they call it self-pity. Many times I feel like I'm the only one who's in this war. And I need to be reminded by you, by Jesus through this meal, the nourishment that often living missionally causes me to be spiritually deprived and Jesus must fill us up every day. Let's face it. When you go to eat today, everything on your plate is dead. Unless you're one of those weird people that eat like cockroaches and bugs and stuff. Think about it. The lettuce that you're eating is dead. The meat, that animal died. The corn, guess what? Even if it's on your plate, it, it, is, it is dead. Even sushi, which I rather enjoy, it's dead. Every day we eat dead things to give us what? Life. Jesus is saying when you come to this meal, guess what? I'm the dead one. This is my body. This is my blood. May you be satisfied in me. Brothers and sisters, we must learn to hunger and thirst for Jesus. We've got to learn, Lord Jesus, help, help us at Mission Church, Jesus. Lord, help us here in this people. Lord, may we be more satisfied in seeking you through prayer and study and evangelism, and song, and discipleship. Lord, may you help us just to do the basic fundamentals, basic Christianity, fundamental Christianity. May we, as, as the people of Mission Church, may we learn to seek and Savior, to consume, to crave Jesus. And at that realization, realize we will never go hungry, we will never go thirsty, that we would eat and drink Jesus, that we would understand that we are most satisfied in Him. Third, what does this do for the church? That it gives us something to proclaim. Whenever we partake of, of the cup and of the bread, we are proclaiming the gospel. When people get baptized, guess what? There's nothing wrong necessarily with taking pictures. There's nothing wrong with taking that person out to eat. And as a person who's baptized several hundred folk, and we can get really wrapped up into that. Can I push into that? Did you know that your baptism is, is 
ultimately about Jesus and not about you, even if you're the one getting wet. And ultimately, your baptism isn't about the person who gets to dunk you. Your baptism is about Jesus. But do you know who else I believe it's for? Every non-believer that is sitting in that congregation on that day, it is a profession of faith. I am buried with Jesus, and I am risen in Jesus. It is a physical example of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus proclaimed to every non-believer that is gathered there. And the same is true of us who, if you gather with us and we are partaking of this cup and this bread, it is the exact same thing, the reminder that Jesus is only true or his work is only true for those whom this bread or, or who through the body of Jesus has been been torn for and, and for those whom his blood has been been porn, poured out for. As I read to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is the proclamation of the gospel. We are proclaiming what Jesus did, that he did it for me. We're declaring that, that he did this for me. I am part of him. I am part of his church. Remember the reformers. They died not because they studied the gospel. They died not because they, they were silent and meditated. They died not because of their lifestyle evangelism. They did not die because they sang songs. No, they died because they proclaimed what communion was illustrating, that salvation is only by faith in Christ alone. We proclaim the gospel through this meal together. There is a warning here. The Bible tells us, as Paul has written here, do not drink in an unworthy manner. What does this mean? I think that there are several layers here. Friends, if you're here and you're not a believer, I want you to know that you're welcome to be here. But the truths of these promises and this covenant if you are not a follower of Jesus, then those promises are not true of you. It makes no sense. Because again, what are you declaring? You're declaring by eating this, by drinking this, that Jesus is my Lord. If you're not a Christian, he's not your Lord. These promises that Jesus is showing us through this meal, if you're not a believer here this day, is that, man, we love you. We're praying that Jesus would save you. We, we long for the day that you will be welcomed around this table, but not because it is our rule, but because it is God's boundary, because he wants us to be truthful people. It is not for you to drink. And so while you are seeing us eat and drink every week, may you contemplate this Jesus. One of the things that we need to, to get as well is that even if you're a believer, that there is a time not to partake. If you're a believer of an unconfessed sin, as the scripture tells us, you are to examine yourself, to evaluate yourself, to confess those sins. Not to dwell on them, but to confess them. And then eat. I think we can also see because of Jesus' teaching and even these teaching here is that God wants us to be unified. So if you have an issue with a brother or sister in Christ, you should not eat until you have reconciled to them. I've had this happen to me. I've had somebody come up before we did communion before, grab a hold of me, and tell me about some things that they really harbored in their life toward me. There's only grace here. That's what he was extended. And then we ate. So what God calls us to do, again, because you were declaring... We're together. 
I would press into this right here as well. I, I would hold to the belief that you need to be a baptized believer. I understand that that can be debated. Um, just this is not thus saith Mission Church. Uh, we do not have in our bylaws and statement of faith, but I believe that the best practice is that, that communion, this table, is for baptized believers. I believe that's the most God-honoring. Again, it's, it's debatable. It's not something to divide over. I, I, I would also suggest just, again, this is not thus saith the Lord. This is thus saith Eric Baker. I think that there is a strong, strong, strong um, inclination that you should be a member of a local church before you partake. Again, why? Does that mean if you're a member at another church that you can't eat this meal? No. And again, we've not blanket statement this as, as the people of Mission Church. These are just my personal convictions that were, I think, even increased even this week as I studied this. Because again, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you're eating of this meal, we're together. These are my people. This is my family. I serve these people. I'm accountable to these people. We do the one another's with these people. So, I, I, again, I think that there can be, we just want to be grace-filled. But that typically that's probably the best practice. Paul would tell us that whatever you do, eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And this is an act of worship for the church to remember what he has done and to trust in his promises to fall deeper in love with him and his church. Lastly, in closing, what is Jesus wanting us to do? And this is where the mindset of the meal should change for us. Jesus wants us to remember that he is coming again. And so yes, we start out thinking about our sin. We're quickly reminded about what Jesus has accomplished. We understand and with joy feel, we see our joy is just escalating here as we eat this meal, as we celebrate this opportunity that, that we come together as the people of God. We are seeing our emotions, our affections for Jesus and his church. And it climaxes at this point as we remember that Jesus tells us, I will not eat and drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. There is coming a day when the Lord's Supper will end. It is temporary. It is a foretaste. It is a shadow of a true and better feast. God is saving his best meal for last. And we see this in the book of Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 through 9 as we see the rejoicing of all of God's people as they are invited to and come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we, we see this enormous celebration of God's global church, all colors, all nations, every tribe, every tongue, worshiping this Jesus, this God as Lord. And we will put to rest the Lord's Supper as we engage eternally as God's bride. And so, Yes, we start out with this contemplation, this confession. But brothers and sisters, every time we take of this, a lot of times, let's face it, when we take the Lord's Supper, it appears to be more like a funeral instead of a celebration. And Jesus wants us to get, every time you take it, it's a celebration. Won't it be amazing one day when we can feast and not be gluttonous and drink of the fruit of the vine and not be a drunkard? Imagine how glorious that that is going to be at this marriage supper, this, this, this great and glorious day that we celebrate. And we need to become better. Confessionally, I need to become better at celebrating what Jesus has done in my life daily. I'm trying to figure that out. You can pray for me. Um, but we are to only focus on the cross. Only would mistake what Jesus is trying to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are no longer in Egypt. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer children of wrath. 
of sin and Satan and death. They no longer have a hold on us. Jesus is coming. We're going to be united with him and all of the saints in glory. And what a glorious family reunion and celebration that is going to be. And so you must ask yourself this question this morning. Do you know this Jesus that I'm speaking of? Do you know of his body that is broken? Do you know of his blood that is poured out as a sign of this new covenant? It is sealed. You are sealed. I mean, get this. You are churched up like me and grew up that way. You need to get this. Like, if you're saved, you are saved indeed. He does not remove his seal of approval on you because that means that he would have to rip off the seal of Jesus and that would lessen what Jesus has done upon the cross. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ indeed. And one day we will stand before him and we will get the ultimate gift and his name is God. It is Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit and we will live in perfect harmony. We won't see like what we saw on the news and that garbage that was happening yesterday. We're gonna see the God in all of its fullness and we're not going to be worried about what people have and what they don't have and what skin color they have and all these sorts of things but we're going to be focused on the person and work of Jesus and him alone and so may we take may we eat may we remember may we drink may we look at each other there should be a lot more cheers going on inside of our communion services than us all moping around like Eeyore at the sight of our sin because guess what your sin is covered. It's, it's done. Yeah, yeah, quit this, this Catholicism of believing that we're crucifying Jesus every time we take it. No, it's done. It's a package deal. All right? We're going to learn as a church. All right? I don't know what it's going to take. We got to learn to liven up a little bit. All right? Are you saved? All right, we need to be a lot more excited when we come together than we currently are. All right, the walking dead. We're saved. Jesus has done it. Don't fake it till you make it either. All right, I understand. But we take our lostness, our depravity, and we compare it to God's glory and his gospel, and that turns frowns into smiles and tears into tears of joy as we gospel each other in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's eat.